Travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Not long ago, mountain biking was simply a minority offshoot of cycling, a sport only a few pursued on mostly quiet cross-country trails. But over the last two decades, it's gone mainstream and now has many disciplines of its own. And as the sport has grown more popular, it's also gotten more extreme for some, particularly our guest, Darren Bearcloth, a free rider he's ridden all over the world and in 2019 filmed a mountain biking movie, Chasing the Yeti in Bhutan. He'll share that experience with us today. From Bangkok, Thailand, I'm Scott Coates, and with me as always is... Trevor Ranges here in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, sitting right next to my Marin mountain bike that I picked up a few years ago and... Uh, has unfortunately not seen a mountain. It does get ridden around the cities. I rode it in Bangkok with you before I moved here to Cambodia. In fact, uh, you know, all of the trail riding I've done in Asia has only been with you. Uh, when you were living in when you were living in Kuala Lumpur, you had some uh, some biking trails that were near your house, and you took me biking one day. And and I I don't know, you know, I did many years ago when I was uh, writing my National Geographic Cambodia book. I did some mountain biking in Koh Kong. Um, but that was just like a really rusty old bike and we were going through some swampy terrain because it was rainy season. So, you know, my experience in, in riding trails in Asia is, is fairly limited. Yeah, I forgot kind of that we'd ridden in Kuala Lumpur and I was lucky in my two years living there to be just 1.5 kilometers from an area called Bukit Kiara that had some you know, pretty decent single track. So we rode there. Uh, these days I'm riding mostly on tarmac here in Bangkok. I do a lot of riding on sidewalks, which are, you know, a meter to two meters above canals. You piece together what you can try and escape from the cars. But over the years, yeah, I've been pretty lucky. You know, I, I think I borrowed a friend's mountain bike in 1998 and started riding it around a reservoir in Calgary, Canada. I'm on my third bike now, third proper mountain bike, but I've ridden a lot of different places in British Columbia over the years. So I've done some really good mountain bike riding there. I've done quite a bit of riding in Nepal over the years. In 2010, I joined a company called Big Mountain and did a trip in Switzerland riding around Verbier and Zermatt, which was incredible. And yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty average rider, but man, I, I sure love it. There's nothing better than getting out on a bike to me, especially on trails, but even even just roads, you know, there's it, it's just such a great way to cover a good deal of distance, uh, smell the smells, say hi to people as you go by. So so I'm, I'm a big fan of it overall. Yeah, for me, I think I could totally see the appeal because, you know, I grew up skiing. I'm from Vermont originally, mm -hmm. and we lived in Tahoe for a while. I spent a bit of time in New Zealand skiing down there. And it seems to me that, like, mountain biking would be something you would do on these same mountains when it wasn't winter. And uh, and just having an appreciation for the beauty of the outdoors and the mountains and, uh, and having done a bit of riding in Hawaii where there's some pretty awesome, like, mountain trails. 
um, I, I definitely can see the allure. Yeah, and in fact, you, you mentioned ski resorts. Is is nowadays, I think Whistler, uh, north of Vancouver, has higher revenue in non-ski season than ski season. So like the hiking, the biking, whether it's actually riding the bike park or just trails around there, it's become bigger than the winter sport itself. Um, before we oh. get to our guests, let's just ask for some financial love and support, everyone. Trevor and I do this as a hobby, cover the costs ourselves, and we do very much appreciate sponsorship. You can go to patreon.com search talk travel asia and we have all kinds of tiers of sponsorship from as little as a dollar a month so please go to patreon.com find talk travel asia and uh, support the show thanks so much and let's get right into it with our guest Darren Bearcloth, nicknamed The Claw, is a professional freeride mountain biker. Hailing from Parksville, British Columbia, Canada, he's famous not only for his success in competitions, but also as one of the pioneers of the sport of freeriding. He's won many of mountain biking's premier competitions, has filmed biking movies around the world, and is more or less a legend in the sport. He joins us from his home in Parksville. Welcome, Darren. Thanks, bud. Thanks for having me on the show. So um, let's start kind of... At the beginning, where are you originally from, and when did you first start mountain biking? Well, I'm originally from Vancouver Island, British Columbia, and okay. in all honesty, I live in the same town that I grew up. Oh, wow. Okay, that's cool. And how about biking? Yeah. Like, when did you first start riding on trails and stuff? Um, it was a natural evolution. Like, when I was a kid, like everyone else had a bike and saw a dirt pile and you know said hey let's make a jump and hey there's a curb let's see if we can jump off of it and you know one thing led to another and mm -hmm. the curbs got bigger and the jumps got bigger and yeah I found myself um racing bmx and then also hitting the backcountry trails on the mountain bikes but back then keep in mind that was quite a long time ago and the bikes weren't nowhere nowhere near capable of what they are now in terms of what you can do on them. So, you know, I wanted to go big and, you know, send it. And when I was younger, you know, the mountain bike never really was the best tool for that because the bikes weren't there yet. So I naturally gravitated towards BMX. Well, that's kind of interesting too, because then like if you're starting out on a, on a bike that, that makes it more challenging as the bikes evolve, you're going to continue to get better because you had to learn to do it on like a less uh, functional bike, let's say. But, you know, we all did that as kids. I remember like busting my head open on some big jump that I built in my parents' business backyard and stuff like that. But, you know, there's another thing to take that leap from like, hey, this is a passion I have to like, OK, this is going to be my job. Like, when did you really realize that you could make a career out of it? Yeah, that was an interesting thing. And I remember it clear as day when I was a kid and a, and a box showed up with a couple frames. It was like my first real sponsorship. And it was uh, in the winter time and the sponsor was K2 in actuality. I think I was like, like 18 or 19 years old. And then from there, it was like, okay, maybe I can get some free stuff. And, you know, because for us, especially living way in the middle of nowhere in, in Canada, you didn't really have the internet and all this information available to you. So you could be like, Oh, Hey, I want to be a pro this or pro that, you know, we would get, you know, a magazine BMX plus, or maybe the odd video, like every couple of years that would trickle to our, to us. And it was kind of like this pipe dream in a far off land being a pro athlete of any kind. So it, it it's, it's, 
I just try to think of, you know, the children now thinking back, like, what do you mean? Like you didn't have the internet and how did you, how did you know your heroes and, and this and that? It was so different back then to where it is now where everything's at your fingertips. If you think you like someone, you just click a button and click another button and you know everything about that person because it's all online. So it was just so, so different in terms of following your passion and, and knowing that it's going to lead into anything because there really wasn't anything previously, you know, in the, like a path to follow. You were just riding your bike, having fun. And then eventually for me, it, you know, I started doing bigger jumps and, you know, started winning some events and then one thing led to another and it was like, Oh wow. You know, like I can maybe make a living at this. Well, that that's just it too, right? Because back then maybe it was just magazines and it would be really hard to get in a magazine. But now because there's so many like YouTube and Red Bull sponsored events and stuff that there's more opportunity even now for kids. It's not just that there's more access for them. There's there's more ways for them to become professionals. So it's kind of amazing that you did it in the early days when uh, when it was first starting to, to grow as an event. Yeah, absolutely. Like nowadays and you know, I'll use this person as a, you know, an example, you know, you look at a guy like Fabio Widmer. Um, he basically said, you know, I'm not going to be a competition athlete. I'm just going to go and make some videos because, you know, my buddy's got a camera and there's this place called YouTube that I can put my videos on and let's see if someone likes it. And 12 years ago, or how many years ago he started, he did that and one thing led to another and now he's at like three or four million subscribers you know like just his youtube channel alone makes more than anybody i know in monetization from ads and that's sorry to cut you off there but but that right there you don't even need to be a pro athlete anymore and you know us you know pros amongst ourselves we kind of nicknamed it three quarter pro because there's so many people that are actually professional, but they have these YouTube channels that are absolutely destroying us because we haven't put all this time into YouTube like so many of these three-quarter pros have for the last six, seven years. Yeah, it is nuts. I remember visiting Canada like just a decade ago or so, and we went to the video shop and there was like two mountain bike videos that you could rent. And now, of course, I was telling you before we started, I've been watching your stuff all week and, you know, uh, some of the other riders and stuff. So I, I understand you're professionally retired from competition, but can you give us a bit of a highlight reel? Tell us a little bit about your professional career and maybe a few key highlights a bunch of uh top five rampage red bull rampage finishes throughout the years um won a bunch of the uh the cash guy that was like my biggest prize purse the series and then uh adidas uh slope style won that three years in a row bike park um slope style three years in a row and then yeah a bunch of other podiums throughout the career and yeah. And then you mentioned on one of the videos I watched beforehand, I think the one that was about your retirement that you said that, you know, now you're still riding and you spend a lot of time in, in Europe and South America. When did you first uh, start riding in Asia and where have you ridden in Asia? When I was 20, I got wasted in Hong Kong on a layover, but I didn't ride there. <laughs> um, so I think the first time that I actually rode in Asia, Christ, it might even actually been China in the Gobi Desert. 
Yeah, I think I think it was back in man, that must have been oh six, oh seven. Was that for where the trail ends? No, that was uh for New World Disorder seven, I think, or six. So this okay. is yeah, that's a long time ago. And when you go to places like the when you go to places like the Gobi Desert, are you like the first person who's ever ridden these locations, or did you go there because someone else had recommended it? You know, I was privy to be able to go and scope a lot of amazing terrain and places, and China was by far um, one of the more out on a limb, I would say, from someone saying, hey, I think there's some really cool terrain out there. You should check it out. And then going on Google Earth. And back then, Google Earth was near what it is now. But we could still kind of get a decent picture of like, yeah, it looks like there's some pretty cool terrain. And the X factor is, you know, is the is the, the soil soft enough that you could actually ride? Because a lot of those types of terrain gets too much rainfall and then the soil ends up being uh, really stiff. But it ended up um, being one of the more the most successful trips, you know, going out on a limb I've ever done. Cool. Well, I think my first exposure to you uh, living way over here in Asia was a uh, movie Where the Trail Ends. And I believe in that you wrote in uh, Mustang, Nepal, in Xinjiang, China. Uh, can you tell us a bit about riding in those two places? That was pretty rad. Um, you know, the Nepal one was by far the most far out there you know, at that time, um, and still one of the sickest trips I've ever done just because, you know, you step so far out of the comfort zone and out of like the, your tourist, you know, areas where I remember rolling into this little village and these kids literally like looked at us with like we were aliens and like, <laughs> they'd never seen these, you know, obviously they'd seen a bike before, but you know, they'd never seen these bikes and they were like climbing on us trying to ride our bikes. And it was just this surreal, <laughs> scene and like you could tell that like it was something really special for them to like encounter us as like some wild you know creature from a far off land right especially the bikes they must have been pretty impressed they probably never seen bikes like that before either yeah yeah they were just you know ecstatic it was pretty wild so uh in 2019 that's when you decided to to get involved in the 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 movie chasing the yeti which you shot in bhutan uh where did that idea to go to bhutan come from the idea of bhutan came from uh, a former guide that i've been uh, friends with kept you know in touch with from my nepal trip and i always ask him hey what's a cool story where have you been you know and he came back to me randomly with the idea of the fact that in Bhutan they have this park set aside for the actual Yeti, like in the park legislations, it's like, this is like, just in case. Yeah. It is a Yeti sanctioned park. And you know, that, that was just, you know, stemmed a, uh, the idea of like, man, we should go for try to ride bikes there and ask them, Hey, are there, are there trails there? And he's like, Oh man, the best, they're beautiful. It's just the Himalayas. It's, super crazy you know like terrain and it's just perfect for mountain biking and uh and then when we did all the paperwork and the policies we ended up getting shut down on filming in that actual park and it ended up turning out in our favor because we still use the yeti story because the yeti and like the myth and the culture it really you know for a lot of the Bhutanese people it's not like oh do you believe in the yeti it's just yeah, it's like the Yeti, it's out there. It's like a bear, you know, for us, you know, in North America, it's just, a, you know, it's a thing. And 
you know, it's everywhere. And we ended up going to a different place, which actually was better terrain and better riding. But in it, in, all in all, we ended up uh, capturing some pretty amazing footage and we got a bunch of stories and I'm actually just in my editing uh, booth now I'm putting it together where we interviewed a guy that's actually seen a Yeti and you know, you got to watch it, but make your own decision up. But after watching it, it's pretty hard to, to walk away from that, not having some belief okay. in the Yeti being real. Cool. Was this guy you talked about cool. uh, meds? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's been a guest on our show a few times and uh, I've traveled with him a lot in Nepal. So yeah, he's good yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty far flung spot. How do you go about planning to shoot and ride there? I mean, it doesn't seem like an established place either for riding or filming. So how do you go about the logistics for doing it? Well, you know what? It took me four years to pull that trip off and primarily being the fact that just getting funding for a, a film trip like that is tough. And at the same time, the logistics were quite difficult. And even with Moz's connections and some other connections, it was still tough to pull off. And we ended up kind of pulling it off by the skin of our teeth. And there's a um, uh, tour guide, Peldon, that helped us out a bunch on the ground there and actually set up the actual trek and, you know, all the logistics that go along with it. And he actually has a tour guide company that he's just starting to do bike tours. Hmm. So now that trek that we did, that whole route, you know, that is an option for people to hire him and bring them through the mountains on, you know, clients through the mountains and do the same thing we did. Okay. That's interesting. That's a question I was going to follow up with later. Like uh, for for people who are maybe more amateurs or don't have the connections that you do, is is Bhutan a place that's possible for people to go do some biking? Yeah, it's going to be very fast. You know, one of the the, the hot spots in terms of you know, obviously not right now because nobody can travel. But once uh, once traveling gets back open. Um, it will definitely be a hot spot. You know, I would compare it to similar to Nepal in terms of the allure and, you know, one day it'll be as frequent, uh, visited by mountain bikers as Nepal is. How does riding, like what, what's special for you? What was unique or different or memorable about riding in Bhutan? You know, the first thing that comes to, that jumps out at you in Bhutan is the culture. You know, you feel at ease within the country and just like the general demeanor of the locals is really calming. It's, it's, it's hard to explain, but, you know, everyone's really friendly. And, you know, you, you, you hear that a lot when you're going out traveling and stuff. But this place is it's truly calming and friendly and people are genuinely nice. And, you know, it's just one of those things where you get off the plane, you know, you get into like the real streets, you know, not just like the fluff of an airport or like, you know, like the flight attendants or whatnot. And it's like, it's truly, you know, a good place to go visit and, you know, go relax and go see some amazing mountains. Now I was watching it uh, again for, I think my third time before we hooked up here today. I mean, you guys push and carry those bikes a goddamn long way up mountains and stuff. Uh, I mean, I, I'm an average rider that keeps my bike on the ground. Is this a country where kind of an average fitness mountain biker could go and enjoy the riding or do you have to be pretty fit and kind of high skilled? You know what? The one thing about altitude is 
I've literally been in a, like a group of 15 people mm-hmm. and you, you know, the fat guy at the back, you know, taking his time bit by bit, making his way up at his own pace, you know, doesn't get sick. Mm-hmm. And then the super fit guy that's just like, I'm going to smash this climb because he can't because he's in shape mm-hmm. and he smashes the climb, boom, altitude sickness. He's done yeah. for the rest of the trip. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to these big trips, as long as you have, especially if you want to do a big trek like this, as long as you have the determination and a bit of, uh, you know, adaptness to uh, um, and a liking to pain, you can you can get through any of these trips and there definitely is some trips that are uh, tailored more towards like shuttling okay um like the first day that we got there it was you know peldom was like oh let's just do a, a warm-up and we did this drive and it was crisis probably hour and a half hour long drive up this windy road and we dropped probably eight thousand feet mm. on this like ancient trail that had been deactivated that you know it was like a footpath like for foot and donkeys to get up and over a pass and now that that road had been created you know that trail had been deactivated in the the local biking scene they which is growing you know they re-established the trail and now it's like this you know basically an ancient trail that got overgrown and started to you know go back to nature and then they opened it back up and now it's just you know it was you know, it was a real treat mm. to start off the trip. That's for sure. Okay. So as long as, I mean, you're determined and, and you got some kind of average skills, you've done some riding, basic technicalities, you'd be able to ride it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Easy. Cool. Well, and maybe, uh, you know, we, we make really good show notes on our website, talktravelasia.com. So we usually have like a Google map. So maybe you can help us a little bit after uh, putting some pins on a Google map so people can check out these spots on their own. I saw in the video that you had a bike that was blessed by a monk there or, or someone like that. Um, do you still have that bike and does it retain any sort of special meaning for you? You know what? A buddy of mine bought it off me not too long ago and, uh, and he, he keeps it in uh, good condition just because uh, I made him do it. Fair enough. So um, what sort of crew do you have? Like I'm kind of cognizant when you watch these movies and you see the beautiful shots of rounding a corner or, or stuff that there's some setup time involved in that. But you guys are pretty remote. Like what size of crew do you have to, to pull this movie off? It was a super small crew. Um, we had one filmer and then we had a writer, which kind of subbed in as an assistant for the filmer and then a photographer. And that's it. And then everyone else you see in the film. Okay. Wow. So super kind of lean. Super lean. And that was the only way we were going to pull it off. And how has the movie been received like by audiences, critics, uh, you know, distribution? Has it, has it sold well? You know, everyone that's seen it loves it. And, you know, our biggest issue, I would say, is the fact that we're not big enough to really put the muscle in behind advertising and pushing it out to the right audiences. And, uh, you know, it kind of sucks because, you know, the, the, the product is insanely good. Like it, it checks all the boxes. It's got, you know, myth, you know, folklore, adventure. It's got the travel. It's got action, which is like, you know, your sport. And, you know, the Himalayas, you know, it checks off so many boxes of what people want to see and get the travel feel and whatnot. And, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's sold all right. But at the same time, I definitely thought that it didn't get it's just, you know, it's it's day in the light. You know, do they have like uh, in Bali, they have the Ombak Bali. It's a surfing film festival that they have on the beach every year. Do they have anything like that for the biking community? Do they have like biking film festivals or anything? You know, what? they have sports film festivals and 
you know what? It's a bit of a joke in my opinion because you have to you have to like spend a bunch of money to get your shit in these film festivals. Mm. You know, and for us, it's like we're going on a shoestring budget and like we could barely pull the film off. And in all honesty, I haven't got paid a cent, Um, you know, and, you know, in all honesty, I've actually cost me money at this point. And, you know, for me to go spend a bunch more money just to get it in a film festival, you know, I'm I'm just not going to do it which is unfortunate. You produced this on your own, right? This was your own thing. Uh, it's me and my brother own the production company. So me and my brother, the producers, and he does all like the logistics, like emails and shit like that. Cause I like to ride bikes and <laughs> sure. take dirt. Sure. So a year out from this thing, looking back at the process of filming it and the ride and everything, what are a few of the kind of standout memories you have from that trip to Bhutan? Man, standout memories is, you know, the one thing, of any of these trips, it always rings true is the fact that Cam, I think said it in the film is like the harder you work for something, the more gratifying it is. Mm. And that is so true because there's been so many trips where it's been really easy and you're just like, meh, you know, that was all right. But the harder it is, the more gratifying it is a hundred percent. And that trip was just, it ticked all the boxes, you know, it had a super hard level of achievement to get to, to finish the trip. You know, you had scenery, you had culture, we had like amazing, you know, times on the trail and just like wicked riding with our friends and, you know, all the experiences that we went through and, you know, just, yeah. And then almost getting snowed in the one day. It was crazy and, yeah, snow. It was pretty rad. Yeah, it was actually like, I remember one time at one point I was sitting in my tent middle of the day and thinking to myself, man, this is insane how fast it's snowing. And like when you're on the tent and the snow is literally building up mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. falling down your tent because it's it's loading so fast, like literally like three inches an hour. And it's just sliding down, sliding down, sliding down. And I'm like, holy shit, this fucking I, I haven't seen the whole film. Did you do any riding in snow or on trails when there was a lot of snow in the in the scenery and stuff? Yeah, we almost got snowed in. Like literally that that like we decided that there was like a big system coming in. So we hunkered down in the bot like not on the bottom of this valley, but like in a sub valley. And it was in the in the middle of the trip. And if it would have snowed another six to eight inches we would have had no choice but to turn back because there was a couple passes that would have been impossible and it was close. Um, but it ended up uh, stop snowing and then, you know, the sun came out and melted a bunch of the snow. So we were able to freaking trek on. Uh, on the note of snow, like you guys hit that highest pass and I assumed you guys were like, okay, we're going to have this epic downhill, but then you're kind of yeah. like cutting across the trail, just trying to stay up in the snow. I mean, at that moment, are you super pissed off or do you just go, all right, let's have fun and make the most of it? Like, you know what? Like normally you'd be bummed out, but these trips I've come accustomed to like the whole, okay, I got a 10,000 foot climb and I'm going to have the sickest descent time and time again you're met with like not as much of a payoff as you thought, you know, you like the whole time you're hiking, you're just dreaming of this like backlit freaking bold out buff single track. That's just cruisy. And then you end up with like stairs. <laughs> so like, so like, you know, to roll on the other side, like hike almost snow free up the whole way. And then all of a sudden have, 
you know, like three feet of snow where we were like post holing on the way down, you know, it was, you know, just part for the course in terms of these kind of trips. Okay. And uh, yeah, you just got to take it, take the punches as they come. So where in Asia have you not ridden that you hope to ride in the next few years? So many places, as, as you know, if you, if you travel a little bit, the world is a big place and you just get that bug in terms of traveling and not the bug that's contracted while traveling now at this current moment, but you know, the bug inside of like, Hey, I want to go travel more and see more places. Okay. So no particular country or trail that you're like, I got to hit it, you know, near the Gobi desert, but a little bit more West got some zones. And I was actually planning on, we were planning on doing a big mountain film and we were going to be going to <clears throat> hopefully going to China this fall, which obviously is not the case. You know, I was wondering like uh, a bit more about like what the, the local scene was here, maybe like even in China and even thinking like, do you think there will ever be an Asian rampage? I keep on getting messages from a couple of the locals in um, Xinjiang and there is a small scene growing in some of the areas that we've ridden. Like I keep seeing them dropping some of like the old lines and stuff that we've done and like sending us, Hey, you know, where are the trail ends? <laughs> you know, like it's, it's pretty cool. So it's, it's growing. And I think it within time it will happen because our very first trip, I brought Todd Barber along and you know, our goal was potentially to look for another rampage site. And, and we definitely found several zones that would work great, but it's just the logistics of being on the other side of the planet in the middle of China. Unless you had like local infrastructure that had grown enough to make that possible. Well, it's good that I, you know, I'd love to see that happen. Scott is a, a, on a bike a lot more than I am. I have one, but I live in the city and don't get to travel with it too much. Um, beyond that, what's in the hopper for you? What do you got going on next? If it's not Asia, what's, uh, what's good? What are you thinking of doing in the next year or two? Well, other than hunkering down in my hometown, um, you know, once travel gets opened back up, you know, it's, it's going to be an interesting landscape within the bike industry because, you know, a lot of people are really closing their wallets in terms of spending and it's no one really knows the answers right now. Like who knows how many bike companies are going to go, you know, tits up over this or if everyone's just going to be able to scrunch enough money and be able to come through on the other side and have a bunch of people that have a little bit of money and they want to, you know, travel and ride bikes. And, you know, who knows? Hmm. But at the end of the day, for me, if I have the opportunities to travel and, you know, shoot some more stuff, um, I definitely want to hit China and, um, you know, pursue the big mountain dream. Cool. Uh, where can people find and buy the, uh, buy the movie and follow you? Uh, people can f buy the movie Chasing the Yeti on the iTunes. Okay. Um, it's all online there or chasing the yeti.com. And then for myself, uh, Darren Bearcloth, YouTube and Instagram, D Bearcloth mm -hmm. and Facebook, my name. And yeah, okay. it's all pretty easy. Just punch my name in and there's only a couple imposters out there. There you go. And we'll have links to all these sites and your social media on our show notes, along with a Google map that pins out some of the spots we talked about. Uh, I do recommend all listeners buy the movie. I bought it and it's fun to have. And especially right now, just sitting around the home, I've uh, watched both uh, where the trail ends and the Yeti again. So thanks so much for making time for us, Darren. And we hope you can get out and get filming uh, fairly soon. 
Yeah, this has been a neat experience. I mean, my mountain biking is keeping it on the ground generally. And I quickly met Darren, uh, Casey and Matt in the movie, um, they passed through Bangkok after filming in Bhutan last year. I took them out for dinner and then I started kind of Googling them and looking at what they ride. And I was like, holy shit, like the stuff these guys, I think this is a totally different sport. But what I loved about chasing the Yeti is that, hey, the bikes are, are mostly on the ground. You, you watch it and you're like, if you've done some riding, you're like, yeah, I could do that. It would be hard as hell going up those passes and carrying your bike. But you're like yeah, I could do this. And the movie is as much a travel movie as it is a mountain biking movie. You just happen to see great riders doing great riding, but you watch it and you're like, yeah, I could do this. And it, and it is really all about travel. Hence, I guess why we had them on. So it, it got me kind of interested in, in going to Bhutan, which I've never gone to and wasn't really that interested in before. Yeah. And you know what I mean? That might be a bit of a jump for, for someone like me to go on a bike trip to, to Bhutan. But, you know, mm -hmm. it, it was interesting that he says like Bhutan could be like the next Nepal for riding. And I was like, yeah, maybe like Nepal would be a better place, especially because you've been there and Mads is based there. And, uh, you know, we really haven't discussed like uh, how how easy or nice it is to go biking in, Bhut or in Nepal. So maybe that's what we should do as an episode. We should do a mountain biking in Asia episode that just gives a little bit more practicality for people who are interested in traveling here. Here and, and doing biking um, from a more amateur standpoint. Yeah, so uh, it was great to, to chat with Darren. I mean, an absolute legend in the sport. Um, but just to hear, I mean, he just, we said what made the ride special. And he kept kind of more going back to the culture and the people, right? More so than the biking a bit. So it shows that even when you're doing, say, we've talked to people about skiing on trip or now mountain biking is, it, there is still that tie of the people and the landscape and the culture and the food and all that. So yeah, it got me pretty excited. So um, tell us, Trevor, how can people help us financially with this show? <laughs> yes, that would be lovely if they did. Uh, of course, you know, people should go to our website, talktravelasia.com, just to check out the show notes. We're going to have links to Chasing the Yeti, Darren on Instagram, his website, his YouTube channel, uh, Google Maps, all that. There will also be a link uh, to donate, uh, you know, via Patreon. Uh, you can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, you know, every little bit counts just because uh, over the years this has added up to, uh, you know, uh, not an expensive hobby, but uh, I'm glad we're doing it and I, and I hope we can continue to do it. And if people appreciate it and they want to uh, chip in a little bit to help us out, that would be greatly appreciated. Otherwise, you know, I'm happy to keep going and uh, I look forward to seeing you in two weeks. And uh, I hope our listeners are back in two weeks when we have uh, another episode. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom in Cambodia? 